Hello, friends. Way back in episode 18, I released a podcast called The Mushroom Forager with Randy Garrett, and you guys ate that up. So I decided to have Randy back on because he's not only an expert in mushroom foraging, he's also an expert in swells and wave energy. So if you want to take that next step into learning about how swells work, how storms work, this is the episode for you. Uh, Randy is an accomplished spear fisherman, surfer, and he is a math teacher at Pacific Collegiate School. Uh, I just, I love the guy. He is the Walter White to my Jamie, and I learn so much from, from him every time we sit down and talk. Hey, if you like this podcast, please donate on Patreon. You can co- go over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the donate button. Even just a few bucks a month helps keep this podcast going. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, if you donate to the podcast, it enters you into a monthly raffle where I give away gear from all of my surf sponsors like Patagonia Provisions, Sector 9 Skateboards, and RPM Fitness. So you could donate. 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever you can afford. Uh, and you could have a nice new skateboard sent to your doorstep. Uh, and if, uh, if you can't donate, I totally understand. I'm also a, an Amazon affiliate, which means that if you go to my website and click the Amazon link and then put bookmark that, uh, and use that for future per, per purchase, pop up purchases. Sorry, I'm stuttering. It's late in the day. Uh, I get uh, a fraction of your purchase, uh, no cost to you. So click that link, use it, bookmark it, and you can support the podcast at no cost to you. Um, And as always, feedback on it always helps. Uh, Sharing it with a friend, using it as a conversation starter, I really appreciate it. And it has been uh, one of the great joys of my life to see this podcast growing so quickly. So we're going to get this bad boy going. Let's learn about the motion in the ocean with Mr. Randy Garrett. Kyle Thierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Thanks for coming on, man. I love having you back. Of course, thank you. For having uh, you. I still have one of the the most talked about podcasts I've done so far. Wow. People love geeking out on mushrooms. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so fun. That makes me quite happy. Thank you. Yeah. No, people are interested, man. Beautiful. In 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 light of that conversation, there was a name that I stumbled over that I I was actually kind of sad that I I, I didn't land on. Suzanne Samard. She's the researcher from the Northwest, and her work is fundamental in the Wood Wide Web. And um, it's I I had said the Santa Cruz method, and I had spaced on the name. It's the Santa Cruz protocol for treating, um, for for treating uh, the toxin that people consume when they eat amanita floides so these are the uh like la times page after here are the corrections yeah. to the original uh, podcast yeah no i do it all the time we're talking sometimes you misspeak or you say mm-hmm. something that uh comes out 
clunky and then we learn and we get better yeah absolutely yeah um but right now we're going to talk about oceans i'm so excited super me too we i'm gonna learn so much right now perhaps we'll perhaps see. i'll 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 tell you what i know and what i don't know what uh where do you start with most people who are interested in diving deeper into the idea and the subjects of swells, waves, oceans, weather. It's so big. Um, I'm st- I still struggle sometimes to find a po- the point of entry to um, something that is just so vast, man. Well, to give you a little comedic um, entree, as soon as you said, where do you start? The very first thing that came to my mind was with a captive audience. I teach high school mathematics i teach pre-calculus calculus calculus, and multivariable calculus and and i run the department where i i work at for more than a decade now and um and so uh when i started teaching pre-calculus at the school that was a you can see see the ocean from my dorm room or my dorm room, my classroom. It's like my dorm room because I live in there practically. Um, I have, I have <laughs> yeah. posters from yeah. my college experience. Come on, guys, there. give him a vacation. He's living <laughs> in this spot. <laughs> totally. Right. I have posters from my college experience up on the walls because I, they're still relevant to me and to teaching math. So um, I guess it does feel like a dorm room. But um, so I, I figured these kids that are growing up next to the ocean some of them don't know anything about the ocean and that's almost criminal that here they are growing up next to this vast wilderness that's populated by all of these different organisms doing all of these different really cool things and they have tsunami warnings and they're calling them tidal waves they don't even know what a tsunami is they don't know what a tidal wave is they don't know what causes these things they look out on the ocean they may see waves they may not see waves they not they may not even be safe because they don't know how ocean dynamics work if you live right next to it it seems like you might want to know something about it if you're growing up in the Serengeti, you probably want to know something about the predatory habits of lions. If you live next to a highway, you should probably understand traffic flow. So it seemed like a natural thing to build a lesson around um, entry-level oceanography. So I start with a captive audience of kids. And when I teach um, trigonometry, which is sine waves cosine waves things that are um functions that are used to do things as different as um do new building construction um send sound through um cds or uh, record sound on on um on underwater microphones from whales in the monterey bay to um receive transmissions from satellites i mean all of the the sine cosine waves are used for all of this stuff it's also used in oceanography and the application to oceanography at an entry level is really really straightforward there are essentially two things that define um sine and cosine waves and for simplicity i'm just going to say uh, from from a standard standpoint i'm just going to say cosine waves because we generally use cosine waves at, at the entry level to model um, open ocean waves. Um, and the two things that define cosine waves are amplitude and period. Um, the amplitude is measured from um, a mean 
level. So if you were to take, imagine a wave in the ocean, um, there's an up point and there's a down point. And if you were to draw a line right through the middle of the up and down point, the amplitude is the height from that line up to the top, but it's also the height down to the bottom. And when I say open ocean, I mean it's not encountering any kind of a disturbance in its path of travel. It's not running into an island. It's not bending around anything. It's just it started through some kind of an event, and there's a whole suite of events. And um, and there's no bathymetry. There's no bottom contours on the bottom that are affecting the oscillation between um, the peak and the trough. You got it. Of um, the cosine wave. You got it. So and a cosine wave for people who are visual learners is the up, down, up, down, snake-like wave yep. that you would expect us to be measuring waves with. Yep. Imagine a series of really smooth speed bumps going up and down. Right. Or moguls. Moguls are a really good one yeah. if you're a skier. And do we measure uh, sound waves with cosine waves as well? You can. Okay. Um, and, and it's less, the term wouldn't be measure so much as it would be model. Right. Um, and at a very primitive level, you would say, yes, you would use a cosine wave. But in reality, what you do is you stack a bunch of these things on one another and change the amplitude and the other part the other fundamental part is the period and the period is the you could think of it as um the time that it takes for ocean waves that it takes for one peak to transition to the next peak and that time could be something like three seconds if it's generated um nearby or it could be 20 Five seconds or once I saw the Monterey Bay buoy reading 29 seconds just this winter right yeah that was wild yeah I went out uh, surfing that day and I had never experienced power out at my home spot like that it was really interesting man uh, that's that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't don't get is how much power punches when you have those long period swells and because it was such a big period i was having pleasure point this is not a powerful wave right i got hit by a wave uh that made me feel like i was at a big beach break in mexico right or in hawaii absolutely and um correct me if i'm wrong on this but a tsunami would be like an hour period oh yeah right Absolutely. so it would be like one foot at 60 minutes yeah or maybe it's not one foot maybe it's like 30 feet at 60 minutes or maybe it's five feet at 60 minutes um or it might be more it could be two hours and the uh, speed of the wave is tied into uh the period and that generally has to do with how the wave is generated um, tsunamis are generated by uh, mass displacement events, uh, meaning you have an asteroid hit the surface of the ocean, you have an earthquake underneath the sea where um, one plate slides underneath another and the, the sea bottom, the sea floor could drop by as much as 100 feet, uh, as in the case of the Banda Aceh earthquake, all of a sudden, all at once. So you can have square miles of seafloor drop hundreds a hundred feet or more and then imagine that transitions all the way up to the surface and 
the surface of the ocean then drops with it. It goes gunk gunk. You got it. All all in one fast motion, and that generates a very long period, very fast wave that it's called a tsunami. It comes from Jap- Japanese because the Japanese were regulars. They happen to have a, a fault line that's just off the coast, and they have had for hundreds of years um, a, a, you could call it a protocol around what to do when you felt an earthquake, which essentially turned into these markers that they had in the mountains and and like the Iron Maiden song said, they ran for the hills, like gangbusters. Yeah, and 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 they have markers that say "Don't build below this line" kind of thing. What's the difference between a tidal wave and a tsunami? So, interestingly, the the name for a tidal wave is extraordinarily descriptive. A tidal tidal waves happen every single day. A tidal wave is generated by the gravitational force of the moon uh, on the surface of the Earth, and the pull of the moon, it pulls on the ocean, pulls on the water. It wants to pull, it, it's attempting to um, pull water towards it. And, and the earth is doing the same thing to the moon. And essentially the way gravity works is these, the earth and the moon are, you could say they're falling towards one another continually. And in that process, um, if you want to think about it in, in a really sophisticated way, um, you could think of it as the moon as a a bowling ball on a sheet, um, like a bed sheet or something, that um, is water phobic. So if you put water on the surface of the bed sheet, it will start to go towards the bowling ball on the sheet, and that that's the way gravity works in in space. Why does it happen twice a day? Um, so. The reason why T- tides, yeah, the reason why tides alter is because of the position of the moon relative to the surface of the Earth. Um, the wave, it's, it has to do with Newton's one of Newton's law, which is for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. So when you're pulling one way, you're pushing another, and then what happens as the Earth is rotating, that pull is still focused on the moon, but the um, now you have a portion of the Earth which is at a right angle to where the moon is, and that is experiencing a, a lower tide event. Um, this is sort of a kind of a broader generalization, but um, that in combined with um, the what goes up has to come back down again. And the position of the sun, if the sun and the moon are aligned or not aligned, and what time of year it is, um, how close the earth is to the sun and so on. I mean, these change like spring neap tides and things like that. But um, our it's spring, that oscillation. And are spring tides the biggest because the earth is closest to the moon at that time of year? Or is that even true? No. That's not true. No. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. th- so the, the moon, the moon's orbit around the earth is not purely circular but it might it might as well be right yeah so but the earth's orbit around the sun is not circular it's like 0.017 eccentricity which means it varies from being a circle um by a bit it looks more like an ellipse okay and it is true though that king tides happen on full moons because 
at that time, that part of the Earth is closest to the moon. Is yes. that the reason? Yes. Okay. And, but that's the only thing that we know throughout the year yeah. of uh, certain tides being larger than others. And and the other thing about tides is like why places in Normandy and um, places in um, France, which is northern France, um, and England experience really dramatic tides yeah, that can stretch by it, a mile or so. Doesn't or England have like a 22-foot or 30-foot tide drop? Yeah. That is crazy to think about. It has to do with the regional conditions. It has to do with the fact that the, the, um, the surface of the earth is not very deep below the, the uh, ocean. And so when the, a similar amount of water moves in, say, Hawaii, where it's that essentially falls off into thousands of feet depth um the water displacement acts over a much larger distance oh i've never thought about that so it has to do with the depth of the bathymetry yep rather than the placement of the place um geographically that makes a ton of sense and it also makes sense uh in terms of why Hawaii has such powerful waves because there's nothing to obstruct those swells from moving in. Boom! Hitting all those waves with a ton more power than it hits in a place like England. Absolutely. There there is also the the effect that um, certain regions of the earth because of their location and because of the way the oceans are are, uh, arranged around the land bodies experience very low tide events regardless i mean even if there is a shallower coastline so but um the general rule of thumb is the shallower the region that you're in where the ocean is the more dramatic the effects of the moon's pull on the water will be and thus the 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 more observable it will be because the the water the same amount of water is moving it's just moving over a greater distance so why do swells happen? Um, so to, to go back to the displacement event um, with tsunamis, so you have your asteroid or you have an earthquake or you have a glacier moving. What's happening is that um, the water is getting disturbed. Mass is being introduced. So there's a couple different ways to do this. You can do it with wind too. And what winds up happening is the energy from the wind is getting um, it, getting inserted into the medium of the water. The water is actually getting displaced by the wind. Um, and as a result, um, waves are generated. Um, and that that event then propagates waves into various directions. The direction of the wind blowing um, in really extreme circumstances when, say, uh, a hurricane is meandering around um, off of Baja. The direction that, that the hurricane is going is tells you what direction the waves are going to be going from that point, because um, of the the way the direction the winds are blowing and the path of travel. If the hurricane is moving away from you and the winds are blowing in a particular direction o- away from your where you are, you're not going to really see much from that hurricane. And, and hurricanes are much smaller events than, say, North Pacific storms that break off of the Kamchatka Peninsula, Peninsula or where you have a, um, 
what's called a pineapple express where you have a storm that's generated um around the equator in the western pacific and then moves over into the north pacific and runs into this temperature difference between hot and cold air and and then gets supercharged with water hot and cold air difference that that discrepancy you should think it it leads to it's like an arrow it leads to um an increase uh, in wind and the increase in wind and the size of that wind um and the the size of the wind event which is called on the surface of the ocean called fetch creates um creates swell so uh, the good a good rule of thumb is the larger the wind the larger the fetch which is the area that the wind blows over and the longer the duration of time coupled with the direction give you swell so those events give you swell and we happen to be blessed on the east side as surfers and people who are interested in waves not blessed if you're interested in shoring up your coastal property um on the the east side of the pacific which is the entire west coast of north america um and south america for that matter the the way the earth's rotation goes which is going from west to east so um and and from the pacific so think you know where the way the way we happen to rotate and, and the um all of the storms travel towards the eastern side of their oceans not all but the majority of events you do have what are called anticyclonic events and so on but as a good rule of thumb like the major northwest storms they move from japan um russia in the North Pacific over towards the West Coast. And the same thing happens over in the Atlantic Ocean in the Northern Hemisphere. You have storms that break off and come off of Canada and that area and um, off of the East Coast and and then start moving towards Europe. And a lot of times, though, they're, it's like Northern Canada around Nova Scotia and so on. A lot of storms will start in a place like Japan and then they will move across. And is it because of the temperature gradient between a storm starting in Japan with warmer conditions and yes. then moving in to hit a place like the Kamchatka Peninsula and hits cold air and there's this all of a sudden this big temperature gradient that speeds up the power? Yes. Okay. Yes. And it shows up as a, as a spiral because yep. of the Coriolis effects yep that's okay. right um and and that's the coriolis effect to remind everybody is the result of the earth spin on things that are moving on the surface of the earth and this is a non-trivial effect like it's the reason why we have upwelling on the west coast of of um north america and south america when the wind is blowing you have the wind will blow the Coriolis, Coriolis effect causes the 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 effect of that wind to spin water slightly to the right, which is ultimately a, a bending away from the coast. And what happens is the colder water then ventures up from the bottom and goes and and fills in the sur- where the surface water has then transited away. Where does springtime upwelling occur? Um, so, in as far as my basis of understanding is concerned it happens in places where strong wind blows in a way where the Coriolis effect allows the surface water to move away from the coastline so and and a case in point for that would be um California Oregon Washington um where in the springtime we get 
what manifest as northwest winds um and those northwest winds um blow the surface of the ocean ultimately because of the Coriolis effect away from the coastline as bizarre as that is yeah because northwest wind isn't offshore wind no it's not it it is absolutely not but because of the Coriolis effect it's spinning this cold water off to the right you got it and then out you got it and up I guess okay. and then the and then water from the bottom comes in and fills up to the top and what the byproduct of this for if you fish or if you spearfish or anything like that is it can make for some cold somewhat murky water sometimes but it makes for really nutrient dense water which is why for example California well the west coast has um, one of the highest density of blue whale populations that are still intact because the um, the food web is hyperactive due to Due, ultimately due to the Coriolis effect because of nutrients coming up off of the bottom of the seafloor, feeding these smaller organisms that are the size of your fingernail, and then that transitioning up um, the trophic scale, which is like, think of it as the food web. Would it be an accurate analogy? But this is like way far away from waves. I hope we're okay No, no, this that. is good. This is good. It's, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, this podcast is highly tangential. Okay. Uh, the way that I am picturing it you can tell me if this is a fair analogy, is that I'm blowing on a, a small puddle. Yes. And the, the air that I am blowing is causing the top of the water to move away from me, but as yes. a result, it's causing the bottom deeper water to move towards me. Uh, it would not move towards you. It, it would, would move away it would, from okay, you. Okay, sorry. So it would yeah. all move away from me. Okay. Yeah. But it's... Because of the surface of the earth, you're blowing towards the coast. Your wi- the wind you're creating would actually spin to the right, in and then uh, th- this is all northern hemisphere. Yes, so this is my main frame. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, we can we can stick around the northern hemisphere yeah. during this whole conversation. Okay, That's I'm fine. I'm like well, I mean we can, we're I'm sure we're gonna go out to the globe, but uh, when we're talking about specifics and spots and how this is all affecting us, it's okay to hang out in our wheelhouse. That That's fine. I will remind uh, our, our listeners that um, my general comfort zone is um, within, the, or at least the place where I speak most frequently about is the Northern Hemisphere. It's specifically about the West Coast of the United States because I teach people that. Um, kids and um, and I understand some of the other stuff going on on the surface of the earth but I want to to um, other phenomenon on the surface of the earth but I want to iterate that that meteorology wave science gets super complicated really <laughs> really fast and and it's fascinating for that but unless we want to start drawing vector fields and doing some partial differential <laughs> equations, like everything I'm going to say is going to sort of be asterisked, and, yeah. and I will do my best <laughs> to make it as palatable as possible. You're you're a great teacher, and okay. I'm happy to be having this conversation with you. Okay. In the past week, I've had five people paddle up to me and say, "Oh gosh, this water's really cold. It's the upwelling, huh?" I guarantee you none of them could explain why it's actually happening. 
Well, now, uh, you, maybe, can, now maybe, you can tell them. Now I can. I can no, tell yeah. you exactly why the okay. recent upwelling happened is because of the northwest winds were gale force off the coast of California. Isn't it funny how much we, how often we go through life though with those little statements oh, yeah. about science, but we don't truly understand how it works. Well, this is one of those things where like. 350, 400 years ago, a highly educated person could know everything we knew about the empirical, empirically derived understanding of the world. This was possible. These were called Renaissance people. Um, generally, they were called re- a Renaissance man, but you know, let's dodge, ditch that, <laughs> and and let's just say Renaissance people. Renaissance peeps. Yep, exactly. And and at this point, it's like. I studied mathematics. I have a master's degree and have done a bunch of other work, uh, both field work and research and work on my own. And I will say that I now know that I know way, way less than lots of other people that walk around on planet Earth. And all of us combined don't have a complete picture. But we're doing our best. So... And, and true, I think, true power and veracity from understanding, um, when I say empirical phenomenon, what I'm saying is like things that you can observe and record and so on, that true understanding comes when you can build a mathematical model that is effectively predictive. So in, for example, if you take climate change, then one of the the things is and actually global warming one of the things is you have many different teams um last i saw it was more than 20 individual teams on planet earth researchers who are working with different data sets who are not collaborating generate generating different mathematical models that are predicting similar events on the surface of the earth that are actually happening and in some cases, their predictions are weaker than the actual events that are occurring. So when when we talk about climate change or when we talk about global warming or we talk about wave models and predicting wave events or um, tide predictions, which we're really good at at this point, um, uh, you know, we do our best. It's a looking into a crystal ball and math is our tool for that. So, oh yeah, I've been skunked plenty of times on surf trips. Yeah. I can speak yeah. firsthand. And and somebody was swearing it was going to be epic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Surfline said it was going to be gold. Yeah. I bet on gold. What what is cool is that a lot of these models are getting better and better. And to the point of Surfline, back in the days when they first started as a surf fax, it was like a they would do month-long forecasts. Like general outlooks, which is cool. Yeah, of course you can do that. But that is like really trying to hit yeah. a black cat in a dark room with one dart. And you don't know how big the room is. Yeah, you're really reaching when you're going a month out. Totally. But we can. But it was better now, than nothing. It was better than nothing. It is interesting to me how quickly it's progressed to the average person to make mm. it easy for them to understand waves and swells and be able to go get good waves themselves. I was thinking about uh, just about 15 years ago when you had to uh, get the radio and get the information through um, the morning radio report and all the Mavs guys in the 90s would, the, the box. would do the box. Yeah, yeah they would oh, have totally. I remember the box. <laughs> west northwest swell 
18 feet every 17 seconds at the San Francisco bar buoy. Absolutely. We're going. You know what's really funny is back back in those days, I remember when the FNMOC, a, a military institution, released these color models that were generated by satellites of storms. I started freaking out as along, along with several other people that were attempting to do any kind of forecasting for wave events. And I, I know from what I've read, I never met Sean Collins. Um, I have the greatest respect for actually the, the predictive models that that man built and the, the team and their, their predictive capacity actually. Um, but um, that we were, got to look at these satellite maps that showed essentially vector fields, which a vector is an arrow with a certain size. So it gives you a direction and then it gives you a magnitude or like a speed, right? So we got to look at these fields of arrows and I remember being able to say, it looks like we're probably going to get swell in the next two days and actually be right about it. Like that was a huge shocker that that could possibly exist, that you weren't just listening to a buoy and you could say, right now it's going to be good or in the next six or eight hours or when the buoy got thrown in like you know 24 hours away from you or the hawaii buoy or call your friends in hawaii do you have any idea how long buoys have existed to Mm. predict waves that's okay i actually don't know that but um so to go like rewind way back to the your original question about cosines What's really cool about understanding waves through cosines and through these really two simple numbers, the amplitude, which is half the wave face if you're a Californian, you're measuring from peak to trough. Um, And we could joke that the Hawaiians traditionally have measured things with just amplitude. Maybe they're just really mathematical about it, which is kind of, I've always thought that was pretty rad. Right. This was a mistake that I made uh, when I was talking about this publicly at one point. I said the amplitude was the point between the... um, the equal part of the um, the wave and the height, but really it's double, correct? So the amplitude is just from the sea is, surface to the peak, right? And the wave face is is generally peak to trough. Peak to trough. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so amplitude, amplitude is half. Yeah, yeah, that's twice the amplitude. You yeah. got it. That's. And, I get and confused about that part. No sweat. You're one of my students do it all the time, and and lots of people do. the The other number number that's really relevant is period, and the period. This period is, um, as I said, the time in between peaks. But what's so magic about that period is that the amount of time that passes really determines how much water is involved in that wave. Which is why when you experience a 20-second wave compared to a 3-second wave, the amount of water that's involved in a 2-foot event of 3 seconds and a 2-foot event of 20 seconds is extraordinarily different. And momentum, the idea of momentum, that is, in a qualitative way, how something is going to slow down when it comes into contact with some other force, um, is mass Uh, times velocity so the speed that the waves going is already faster for longer period waves because of the way that they were generated and the mass of water is greater of course it would feel like a more powerful experience Um, and what winds up happening is because waves what they do is they move in a manner where 
you could think of it as the water goes up and down. It, it circulates, but you could think of it as going up and down, but the direction of the wave is perpendicular to that. What winds up happening is that um, when a wave comes into contact with the coast, it starts to feel the bottom. The bottom slows, the bottom of the wave slows down, but the rest of the wave doesn't. It starts to feel the bottom of uh, the, the sea, sea floor. The yep. sea floor. Yep. Okay. And so for a 20-second period wave, because there's much, much more water involved, that cycle runs much, much deeper. It feels the ocean bottom further out if there's a gradual incline to the um, sea bottom or the sea floor. Um, and it feels it in the same place if you're in a place like Hawaii, where it goes from being a thousand or Tahiti or whatever, where it goes from being a thousand feet to being 12 feet or three feet for that matter. And what will happen is the rest of the wave is not slowing down. It wants to keep doing what it was doing, which is doing this circular motion. And so then the wave throws out like crazy and, and go for it. And and so if we scale that up to like the really interesting I mean, waves are totally interesting, but like on a broader spectrum, societally interesting events like tsunamis, which we really should be educated about. Um, when you have a minute long or hour long period, the amount of water that's involved in that cycle is extraordinary. It is so goes so deep. And what you'll see a lot of times in these um, tsunami events is you'll see the wave starting to shoal and pull water out like a half mile out to sea because at a thousand foot depth that wave is feeling the bottom right that makes sense because when we had our tsunami here in 2011 in santa cruz uh, a lot of my friends were surfing at that time and they said it was an immediate low low tide that's right they were surfing and then all of a sudden the ocean sucked out yep and then it came in. That's exactly right. And that's the cycle of that wave, just on a much, much grander scale. So if you were to watch a wave on the surface of a lake or the wave on um, in a bathtub, for that matter, when you blow on it, or you, you just look out at the Pacific Ocean or whatever ocean you happen to be at, and you see a wave come in, and you see it roll, and it's not breaking and not breaking, and then all of a sudden, a little white water starts to form, and then it crumbles and comes in. Imagine that cycle extended out to a much larger playing field over a, a much larger period of time. Right. And that's a tsunami. Let's pull it back out to a storm coming off of Japan. It interacts with uh, cold air off the Kamchatka Peninsula. It picks up speed moving down the coast of Oregon and into California. The period is increasing as it's moving down and the amplitude is dropping because the longer a swell moves unless there's constructive interference from another swell that helps it pick up amplitude the more time a swell moves across the ocean um, the more the amplitude will decrease and the more the period will increase is that all correct to say um mostly okay. the one the one piece that I would um, edit is that uh, the period of a wave is sort of set after the energy has been inserted into 
um, the ocean. So when you have constructive interference between other waves and you have this large scale wind event and a lot of water displacement, when the wind is done and there's no other, and, and I'm going off of what you had said here, when there's no other additive phenomenon that are occurring, like interaction with other waves, no constructive interference, the period of the wave is, is set. And the longer period waves, which move faster, show up first. The shorter period waves show up later. And as they travel long distances, their amplitudes decay. And you can hear this if you, when you listen to sound, that whatever the sound is that you have, have, have uh, um, made from your mouth or made from an instrument or something, if somebody starts to move away from you, they will still, still hear the same um, tone which is essentially the same frequency, which is one over the period, but it will become fainter. And the reason why it's becoming fainter is because the amplitude's decaying. And, and the sound model is actually a really sound model for, for understanding waves. Right, but why is it then that swells that move from a further distance away from us are better? Um, okay, so that, that has to do with the fact that the swells that are generated farther away from us, the only waves that get to us are the ones that are the longer period waves. So when we get in, say, the northern hemisphere, when we get waves that um, are generated by the roaring 40s or furious 50s or the screaming 60s, these, the, the, the southern hemisphere, the contiguous belt of ocean where storms are spinning around in this they'll just get smaller and larger and smaller and larger when when those wind events are blowing they happen to be blowing waves in our direction all of the three second period five second period eight second period all that stuff all the those those waves they have decayed and gone by the time the swell gets to us and the only thing that's left that actually gets to us is the stuff with the long period. So what when it hit Easter Island, hit with, uh, say, a 20-second period and a 20-foot um, wave face um, might manifest itself in California as a 20-second period and an 8-foot wave face. Or, or even 2 or feet. Sometimes we have foot. those summer swells where it's, yeah. eight, it's 2 feet at 18 seconds. Yeah, and a, a part of that has to do with what direction the waves were sprayed at. Um, those are rare swells, but those are the yeah. ones where you go out and it looks flat and then all of a sudden you see a huge set come through yes. and then it's flat for another 40 minutes and then right. you see a huge set come through. And, and these events are really arguably for people that are in, um, in, in first responder category that it's so on the coast. The, this is such a, a fret filled time because you get people that look out in the ocean and they're like, oh, it's really calm. And, um... And then they have their wetsuit zipped on inside out and backwards and right. they paddle out on the rented board and they don't know. That's okay. If I went to a ski slope, I wouldn't know either. And I might wind up going and launching myself into an avalanche. And so they look and it's like, it looks relatively calm, but the ocean is really dynamic. And these events, unless you know what to look for, can be hidden. And as a math teacher, this is one of the things that, um, one of my objectives in, in teaching introductory um, oceanography is to get it so that kids look out on the ocean and they just see more and that they they understand what they're looking at they can count waves when they come in they can say okay so that first wave what just came in start counting 
And then 17 seconds later, the next one comes in and they'll understand, oh, this is actually a legitimate wave event that was generated probably pretty far away. Um, and if it's not really consistent, we should probably keep looking for these 17 second um, period waves that are showing up and they're going to be fairly powerful. Why do sets happen? Um, that has to do with um, when, when waves are generated farther away. Uh, the constructive and destructive interference component. So what we're talking about with constructive and destructive interference is, let's say there's a swell moving across the ocean, and then there's another swell that interacts with it in a constructive way and helps it pick up amplitude or helps it change direction. A lot of the waves down in... In Southern California, the beach breaks are best when there are two different swells coming in because it makes for peakier waves. Right. Whereas if you have destructive interference, that's a storm moving in, and then it's another storm that interacts with it in a way that slows it down or forces it to lose power. Yeah, a, a really good a really good analogy I, for this. Would I be- hope you know I'm like saying all these statements, but then. At the end of it, I have an upward inflection because it's kind of like a question to yeah. you. So I want you to correct me on any of these statements, please. No sweat. Okay. Um, what I'm capable of correcting, you will. I'm talking like a cat, like a girl from LA. We're all say there will be a storm coming in, and there's destructive interference, <laughs> and it'll cause the storm to lose speed. You know, frankly, what's what's really what's really cool is is att- attempting, in my opinion, is attempting to use language that you're moderately comfortable with and putting yourself outside of your comfort zone, and um, and then checking in and seeing, am I doing it right? Yeah, I th- I, th- I think I think this is incredible. This is how people get good at stuff, and people who aren't willing to put themselves out like that, un- unfortunately, as Teddy Roosevelt said they're going to live in the shadow of where they just criticize people who are doing things. Well, dude, so many people are afraid of looking stupid. Yeah. That's that's it. Yeah. And I think that it unfortunately goes back to very young lessons that we learn because either our parents told us that, oh, you're stupid, or your friends told you, oh, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're so stupid. And then you become afraid to ask questions. And then someone uses a big word that you don't understand, but you aren't comfortable enough to make them pause and say, sorry, I don't know what that means. But it's the second we can get over our fucking egos. The world is so rich with information and we're never going to have a chance to learn all of it. Oh no! And I'm passionate about this man because I see people's lights dim after high school. Yeah. I see people who have lost that fire and that passion for learning. So I'm very much willing to be the idiot in the room and misspeak left and right as people who are listening to this conversation know I do quite frequently. But shit, man, it's better than not learning. Is, <laughs> so let's is, keep it going. It is the way to learn. And I, I strongly contend in my classroom that the path to learning is developing a healthy relationship with mistakes that mistakes are simply opportunities and if you're not making mistakes then you have fewer opportunities yeah and there is a balance though because you need to hate messing up but you need to be okay with it i've been thinking about this a lot recently it's the difference between saying i did a poor job on that and i am a bad person 
Sure. Right? There's the, there's the difference between I made a mistake and I am that mistake. The distinction is the agent and yeah. the activity. Right. Absolutely. But you but you need to be uncomfortable uh misspeaking. As I am, if I say something that I thought I was right about that I'm wrong about, oh, it pains me. It's that stomach ache from like, "Oh god, Kyle, don't do that again." Yeah. Right? But it takes both. Yeah. There's duality in everything. Absolutely. The yin and the yang of life. Yes. The so- oscillation the temperature gradients <laughs> there you go it's deep the um the so the, the analogy that i wanted to hit on earlier was con- with destructive interference a, a, a great visual for this is two people pushing on a sofa they're trying to move and one's on one side and the other one's on the other and they're pushing straight towards each other. I hate it when what? that happens. <laughs> I mean, of course. No, no, Randy, go left. No, no, your other left. No, no, that's not left, dude. There's only right and left. Exactly. Okay, no, you go high and I'll go low. No, no you go high. Right. So we're both expending energy and yet the object isn't moving. Right. Or because you're probably much stronger than I am, the object will move towards me and I'll be like, stop it. Right. <laughs> so... Um, that's destructive interference. All I'm doing is taking away from what energy you're putting into the system. Constructive interference is when we both start pushing in the same direction. So that's a part of it. Um, sets happen as a byproduct of that. They also happen as, um, as different periods of waves start to travel when there's variations in their speed. So um, with variation in speed, you have one moving out a little bit further and the other one not nearly as far out. And, and, and um, the other component of that is that um, when waves start to, um, well, this is constructive interference, but when they start to accumulate, um, the wind also isn't blowing generally. I mean, sometimes it does. blows just continually at like 70 knots and doesn't stop in one direction. But sometimes it does. Sometimes the direction changes. So the direction switches from it's blowing straight west to now it's blowing southwest. Now it's clocked back over to west again. And all of a sudden, the bulk of the energy is now going in a slightly different direction. And that also will cause variation in the appearance of sets. Okay. Um, Does that make sense? That does. That that totally does. That totally is. And then what causes a wave to break is the bottom contours on the ocean shifting in some way that it forces the oscillation to move up and that swell to turn into a wave and break. You got it. Okay. And, And just as in, and what's beautiful about this as far as waves are concerned is that the low frequency in sound waves are the ones that travel really far, which is frequency is one over the period. So as the period gets bigger, the frequency goes down. One. So the equation is frequency is equal to one over period. Bigger period, shorter frequency, the small, or the smaller the frequency, I should say. And then a higher period, the, um, the, the, excuse me, the, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Let me no, clean, let's let me, start over. Let me yeah. clean this start up. from the top. Yeah. So the the bigger the number for the period, then the smaller the the frequency number, and the smaller the period, the higher the frequency number. And so the way that this transitions from sound as well as for waves is that when you have a three second um, period swell, 
it's not, I mean, you wouldn't really call this a swell, but when you have a three second period wave um, or, or series of waves, um, the frequency is quite high, just like sound and high, really high frequency sounds just don't travel as far. They, they don't propagate as far. They don't move through their medium nearly as well. Um, and the low frequency um, stuff, which is the um, when the period gets really long, so as the number like 20 second, 30 second for waves, 40 second for waves, as that, um, that number gets uh, larger, then the frequency shriek shrinks and those waves travel really far. And the same thing is with sound. Um, I just heard a presentation today on um, blue whale um, soundings in off the coast of California. The recorder, which is set up in the Monterey Bay, is recording blue whale soundings, and it's omnidirectional, which means it's recording them from all directions, that can be up to 300 plus kilometers away. It, and, and in some cases, um, more. So that means you might have a blue whale near Oregon that you're recording the sound for in the Monterey Bay. And that has to do with the fact that when blue whales make noise, they do it with a frequency that's really low and the period is really long. And, and it's the same effect for, for ocean waves. Wow. Blue whales, the... Blow your mind. Play blow my mind. <laughs> They're huge. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm a visual guy, so I'm actually going to write this out. So give me the uh, the equation for a maverick swell. Oh, so um, you, for a cosine, the way I would write out a swell if in the open ocean, I would say that... Um, it would be 10 foot on the amplitude. Okay. Cosine, and this is going to sound sound like a mess, but it's 2 pi over any number that varies from about mm, 15, 2 pi over 15 to 2 pi over 25 plus, which uh, times T. And what that means is, this is just a mouthful to say over... Uh, <laughs> I apologize. It was something I would write on the board, but the period would vary in what I just said from 15 to about 25 seconds. And from what I understand of Mavericks, which I have never made it up to actually go and surf, I will say, is that you want something to be in the 10 foot plus range and have a reasonably long period that's 15 seconds or more. So, um, and that would be the open ocean model. Uh, that whole statement I made about being okay, feeling stupid, I retract immediately. <laughs> trying to write this out, my mind. I, I'm not sure it's helpful at all to say no, that it's, in a like okay. an audio we're recording. Good. It's good. actually kind of obnoxious. No, you caused a few car accidents, or some people had to pull over on the side of the road and bust out their notebooks. Okay, I think I got it, but it's good. It's good. That's why I'm having you on. Is because I want to learn about all of this. This is fascinating. Cool. Cool. All right. I mean, the, the the wonderful analogy really is is that sound and waves are really the behaviors because it, they're both modeled by cosine, and they both travel through their medium. Yeah, there are some variations in the travels of the medium, and the distances they travel, and so on. But the the 
qualitative understanding transitions really nicely from sound to waves in the ocean. Yeah, and people get it too because everyone has screamed down an alleyway and they uh, can get their sound waves bouncing off of the walls and traveling further than if they're screaming at a wall. And you know what that is in the ocean? That's a long, uh, maybe a long, or if they're screaming, maybe a short period wave that is bouncing around inside of a bay and refracting off of various surfaces until it ultimately decays away. Right. That was uh, an interesting thing that I learned about Port Escondidos, that there's a submarine canyon that uh, forces the swells to bounce off of the canyon, and that's why you get big peaks instead of just one big closeout. Yeah, what's happening is in in the bottom of the ocean, parts of the wave are feeling the bottom and parts aren't, so part of the wave slows down. Another part of the wave is still going closer to the original speed and that variation in the speed causes some waves to wind up interacting with other waves and it causes the waves themselves to bend a lot like for example if you were running down the street and somebody were to just like grab your shoulder as you were running and you didn't slow down you would spin a little bit and that's exactly what happens and you would slow down a little bit too gotcha gotcha um why does wind happen <laughs> so um the 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 most straightforward answer to that and, and the way i understand it um is um i understand wind as a v- vector field which is a bunch of arrows with certain sizes and these arrows wind up changing their sizes and direction based on the temperatures um the temperature discrepancy between the air and the ocean, land, and so on. So where there's temperature variation and you have hot air going up and you have cold air going down and you have this exchange, um, then you wind up getting wind. Gotcha. And and it's the gradient. It's too. I, I picture that my hands rubbing against each other. Yeah, you can think. You can think. Right. Yeah, you can think of it more like that. Okay. More or less like that. And as a consequence, what happens is if you could, your hands, if there, your hands are one hand's going across the other, um, you would generate warmth. But um, in reality. Um, due to the fact that the only reason your hands aren't passing through one another is because of the repulsive force of the electromagnetic field between the electrons in one hand and the other, the space in between is experiencing a swirling behavior. It's very, very, very small in the setting. But there is actually space, even though it feels like your hands are touching, there is actually space between your hands. And that space between your hands has these tiny little micro swirls that would be happening. And if we had smoke in the room... Um, where you moved one hand over the other, you would see the smoke to start to swirl as it came off of your hands. And this is actually, you know, that, that's a reasonable analogy. This is how storms form because they start to swirl. Gotcha. And then the Coriolis effect starts to th- throw in more energy into that because then one, one part starts to bend around on the other. Why is water uh, so good for conducting energy and sound? Um, because if if a whale was um calling on land that sound wouldn't travel nearly as far as it does in water correct that's right 
it has to do with uh, relative densities. So, and when I say density, what that means is the amount of stuff in a particular um, volume. So imagine um, the classic model is a pound of feathers and um, a pound of lead. Well, how much does each weigh? Well, that's kind of a funny question, right? They're both a pound. Well, how much space do they take up? Well, you might have to work pretty hard, but I bet you could probably pack a pound of feathers into the space of a pound of lead. Um, but the idea is that you would have to work pretty hard to do it. And the pound of feathers would occupy more space. It's less dense. And so the air is more like the pound of feathers. Water is a state that's in between the lead and the feathers. Um, and then land or um, a solid is like lead. And so um, the gradation of sound propagation or energy propagation in the form of waves um, goes from um, lower density is, is weaker, things travel less far, they decay more quickly, to higher density where things travel a lot farther and decay less quickly. Okay, gotcha. And, and so w what winds up happening is when you when you um, induce a sound event into the ocean, that sound can travel really, really, really far. And to the point where, well, I, I dove in the Sea of Cortez and I had a humpback whale that wound up being about 200 feet away from me. I didn't get to see it. Visibility was about 50 feet. But it was making a lot of noise, and boy, did I hear that. It was so ear-splitting loud, but not just ear-splitting. It felt like it was coming from every single direction, and I could feel it. It almost felt like my organs were liquefying. It was so loud. And I never got to see the whale, which is crazy, because I came up. There was a boat, and these people on the boat were freaking. They're like, did you see that whale under the water? No, but boy, I heard it. And then like I saw it further down the way and it surfaced. And that's because the sound that it was emitting, it just travels with so much energy through the water to the point where, um, you know, a lot of a lot of ocean mammals utilize these sounds as communication over long distances, um, weapons. I mean, this is the way we think sperm whales actually hunt down like a mile below the surface. They hunt these large squid. They swim up to them. They're faster than the squid. They're using a, what is essentially an underwater sonar system that they've evolved to have. And they get a visual image from the waves refracting off of their prey which is the squid the squid has to know this is happening the squid will they would feel this the squid would feel that it's being hunted by something in the dark that it can't see that is getting closer and closer and then the sperm whale gets close enough and does what's called a shotgun blast and it emits a sound that stuns the squid and then it begins to consume it whoa and and this is all because of the way sound propagates through the ocean. So Randy is in a dark house. All of a sudden, he hears <laughs> Kyle's voice come from all around. It's the voice of God. He's like, where are you, Kyle? I don't know where you are. I'm all around you. You got it. I don't know where you are. I don't know where I am. And then you turn in the bathroom and go, ah! And you go, ah! 
exactly <laughs> except scares in the, the pre- shit out of you <laughs> and, and except in the previous scenario you're hannibal lecter <laughs> yes so and and i know you're coming and you're faster than me you're smarter than me and there might be three of you and there's one of me and I can't get away. Oh, I'm going to have nightmares tonight. It's pretty rad, though. Yeah. And and this is one of the things, actually, for the sounds that are generated from ocean-going vessels. There's more energy being put into understanding sound propagation, which is waves, modeled by cosine again, um, to keep these out of the frequency that are used by um, cetaceans, whales, dolphins, and so on. Um because it's really disturbing to them and they can hear them from miles and miles and miles and miles and miles away. I was trying to do work on uh, my computer at a coffee shop the other day and there was this guy next to me who had this loud booming voice. I think he was from Austria and he was talking about the new app that he was developing and he wasn't even talking to me. He was talking away from me but there's a new app that was going to change everything. I could not focus on my email. It, it would be like that, except <laughs> that except except in the setting of like whales and dolphins. Um, it would be like the vessels are ten miles away, and you can't talk to people that are right next to you, and you can't even focus or think. You can't see because a part of your vision is tied into your ability to echolocate. Like it affects your vision, it affects your hearing, affects your ability to eat, it affects your orientation, you wind up beaching yourself. I mean, this is why sound in the ocean is a really, really big deal. Yeah, I saw uh, disturbing photos of dolphins washing up on the beach after sonar testing uh, for the El Diablo nuclear power plant. That was a big controversy. Do you know much about that? I, I, I don't. Um, but this should not come as a surprise to anybody. Anybody who uh, who has looked into cetacean communication, dolphins and whales and so on, um, and uh, understands um, and has looked at the the, the data um, and the recordings of these animals um, and understands how they they hunt and how they orient themselves. This is not. This is. This shouldn't surprise anybody. At all. It's essentially the analogy is grabbing a town full of people and then sticking blindfolds on them and covering their ears and spinning them around and saying, okay, go about your day-to-day business. There's going to be a bunch of people walking into traffic and like walking off cliffs and so on. And they're going to be totally confused and not know what's going on. This is not a surprise. Yeah. Uh, What have you learned um, as a result of all of your time spearfishing? That... The louder I am, the less fish I see. So the best thing that I can do, and you know, it's funny, I came to spearfishing through, it really is through surfing, um, wanting to dive down and see what was down underneath me. And and it was a friend of mine, Daniel Van Hastian from South Africa, who's since passed away, who has really mentored me in, into, um, into free diving and spearfishing. And... Um, one of the things he really stressed was being quiet because even if you're not hunting, the sounds that you make propagate through the water in in a way that every single organism around you can hear and feel. 
Like they feel you there because you're making noise. So, um, and, and my understanding and the way I've come to understand this is actually came from both my relationship with mathematics and trigonometry, as well as my understanding from ocean dynamics and, um, uh, with waves. So, uh, I try and be quiet and whether I'm hunting or not, I swim down a lot of times and I will oftentimes grab a hold of a rock or I'll grab a hold of some kelp and, um, and I'll look around and if I just wait calmly, I burn less energy. I, um, my oxygen load, um, stays higher longer. Um, and I see more because the, a lot of, a lot of these animals, some of their, some of the vision that they have is not great, but boy, can they see me if I move and boy, can they see me if I make noise? Yeah. So it really depends on, on the animal. And sometimes, the and yeah. And sometimes you do want to make noise, scratching yeah. your gun a little bit and they'll yep. come up to get curious. There are some things, uh, depends some tricks, the, right. That can get fish to come up, but it depends. Depends on the species. Some of them spook really easily, um, with, with sound. And some of them are really curious. They're like, what are you? But that said, you don't want to, or at least I don't want to be so loud that all of the fish are like, I'm getting out of here. This right. is way too loud. But sometimes, you know, a, a, like a clicking sound or something like that or banging something around that sounds like a fish moving will bring a lingcod out of a hole. Like uh, one of my regular, one of my really fun regular tricks is to go and find something that lingcod like to eat, which um, is uh, having looked at the, 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 the food web, the, that uh, was produced by a, a friend of mine, Rodrigo Bayas. Um, they love cabazon. They love greenling. Um, and they love blue and black rockfish. So if I could see any one of these species of fish, I generally try and spear it. And then I leave it on my gun and I leave my gun loaded. Um, and um, I keep, I, I leave it on my gun in such a way where it's still alive and it starts to move around and I'll put my gun somewhere and that's the only noise around and that brings predatory fish in. Then all of a sudden you got a shish kebab. Exactly. Now I have two. Um, and, and that's, that's pretty fun. Sometimes I'll even see two or three of them. What were you going for in the Sea of Cortez? Um, so I was actually watching some smaller amberjacks at that time. Um, I was down, if I remember that dive, that particular dive, I was down about 40 feet and I was holding on to, um, some rocks near a reef. Um, and I was, uh, and and I was looking out at, at this, this kind of a wall of, of rocks. And there were these, um, amberjack that were swimming around. And, um, and that's when I, I mean, I could kind of hear the sounds, uh, from far away and then all of a sudden it was like i really 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 heard them like super duper loud um so and and it was like one of my first dives but it just got louder and louder and louder and and i don't know i suspect it was probably because the whale was coming towards me but i I can't say i mean it would make sense the way i understand wave propagation that it wasn't originally facing towards me and then it was like i wonder what that thing is and and then it found me and i was like "Eh." Just yeah. one of those like weird 
monkeys swimming around underwater for like three minutes. This winter in Hawaii, <laughs> I brought all my spearfishing gear over there. Yeah. And I had snorkeled a little bit in Hawaii, but I had never gone spearfishing. And boy, oh boy, was it a whole new world compared to diving into the kelp forests of Santa Cruz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I can see. Far. All of a sudden, I can see far. Yeah. And they can see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what you think is a fish that's like, 10 feet or 5 feet away from you is actually 25 feet away from you and you might pull the trigger on your spear gun and just watch that spear sail down in this wonderful parabolic like slow languishing arc and the fish just kind of looks at you and it's like huh? Howdy (laughs) (laughs) swims away or it might bolt but you're that that is a safe animal (laughs) Uh, why does um, your vision get magnified underwater? Um, that's, that's really interesting. So I, I has to do with the way light bends going from the, the, the aquatic medium to the air. Um, and, um, I've always taken it as that there might be, um, another component to that, but animals and things do look bigger to us, um, because our eyes aren't in direct contact with the water. Um, there might be something more that I don't know, but yeah, when you're surfing over a coral reef in oligotrophic conditions, big <laughs> word I learned recently means uh, water that is not nutrient dense, uh, clear water. You can see the coral reef, and it always looks much closer than it is. And you'll yeah fall face forward, and you think you're gonna get your face scraped off, but most times you tend to be okay. Yeah. That's a, and and I think it has to do with I mean light bends um, because uh, it's traveling from going from one medium to the next and and that's the the same thing when if for example you had sounds coming out of a, a solid and going into a liquid or it, it just has to do with the the way the a, a wave propagates through a medium I haven't really touched this one but um, light is also modelable by these waves. Um, it is intensely complex in that the, just to open the can of worms about light, you have to deal with like relativity and you have to deal with thinking about it as a wave and a particle. Um, let's wait. For, let's wait till next time. And, and I'm not prepared. We did mushrooms the first time. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing waves this time. Then yeah. we can move on to light in a third one. There's only so much my brain can handle right now. Sure. Sure. And and as far as you know understanding light is concerned i think a, a really good a, a good foundation for light and sound and ocean is to think that they are they can all be thought of as waves and a lot of the qualitative characteristics that are observable on a day-to-day um, basis by people are are shared so there's consistency um just don't Travel really, really fast, and don't talk about really long distances. Well, I got a simple one for you. Here's here's a question yeah. that's been stumping me recently. So, when winter swells come down in a place like Santa Cruz, all of the sand moves south, and you'll have a big storm that will wash sand out of a beach, and it'll move down the coast. How does that sand move back? Or does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. It just keeps moving south. It's, it moves. I mean, particulate matter in the ocean migrates, but um, 
I, I, I guess I will, I will, I will put an asterisk on my previous statement and just say that uh, that sand may come into contact with the surface that it was just on, but the time frame that we're talking about is geologic, and and what that means is we're talking about <laughs> potentially millions of years and like ice ages and the crust rising up and like who knows all of the stuff that's going on but it is definitely it is moving on somewhere else a lot of times the sand that we're experiencing in santa cruz and on the coast of california as it's transiting um north south because that is essentially the river of sand that's moving um is uh coming from a couple different sources um and the quaint way to think about it is through Jimi hendrix is uh the mountains moving to the sea um and they're just becoming smaller uh castles made of sand right so the the mountains are becoming smaller the sand is coming out of rivers and the rivers are pumping out sand that's then moving in this current that's moving lateral to the coast and along with it all the sand that's on the beach and all the sand that comes off of cliffs that are decaying and so on have you seen a documentary called sand wars I've heard of it. Did I, I tell you about this one? I think you did. It's yeah. not a very well done documentary, but it's a very interesting story about sand and how we build uh, a lot of what we use in our life with sand. Uh, cement yep. is made with sand uh, and a lot glass. of glass. And a lot of this sand we can't use from the desert because it needs to have... Uh, it needs to still be chunky enough that we can put it together and desert sand is too smooth so we use beach sand from around the world and there are areas where the beaches have been gutted because they've been used for um, for cement and other um, other other things that we use but um, it, it's interesting to me because this is kind of going to take us back up the mountain uh, in in regards to that sand originally comes from the mountain it's rocks breaking down and down and down until they reach the beach and become smaller and smaller but we have in the past hundred years dammed a lot of the rivers and that sediment isn't making its way down to the beach anymore right does that worry you <laughs> should this worry us um well, there's still sand on beaches. Because it's, it's one of those things where it's so slow, people don't right. see it. it. It doesn't worry people in the same way that a great white shark attack worries people because, as you say, it's happening on a geological level. Or, or at least scale. on a large, like a macrocosmic scale. It's so large. Um, and the time that it's framing, that it's moving in, is slow relative to our day-to-day -day existence. Um, so... I've heard a, a bit about this, but my basic understanding or my basic concern around um, dams and sand flow is largely f f for andronomous fish. Um, and what, is, what is androgynous? And, andronomous and, andron fish. Not androgynous, andromenous. No. Yeah. <laughs> David Bowie fish. Right. <laughs> um, uh, no. I've, I've seen one of those David Bowie's fish. They scare easily. <laughs> <laughs> they do, but man, can they sing. So, um, no, andronomous fish are fish that go from the salt water to fresh water and have some 
um, component of their life cycle in transition from fresh water to salt water, salt water back to fresh water. Um, think salmon and salmonids. Um, and um, what's, I mean, while sorry, I, what, sorry, what's a salmonid? Um, di- all the different various species of salmon-like fish. Gotcha. Um, chum, coho, chinook, salmon, like, and their skin. Just like a, yeah, it's just like a huge list. All, okay, whole bunch of largely delicious animals um, that have high market value. Um, but aside from that component, and thinking about it as a consumer of of a salmon, um, salmon are uh, they they provide so much for regional ecosystems. Um, some tree matter, uh, uh, some uh, trees um, when they have been analyzed for, uh, I believe it's the. I believe it's the nitrogen component, but, or no, it might be the carbon component. I can't remember actually, but there's a component of, of the tree, uh, of trees along these riverbanks, um, where salmon are allowed to, to swim because when I say allowed, it's not like there's no salmon swimming signs. It's more like they can get there and it's a part of their, um, historic habitat, um, that the salmon corpses are actually um, providing a substantive component of the nutrient suite that these trees are living off of. And, um, and the trees are providing habitat for all kinds of other organisms from mushrooms to other animals like beavers and chipmunks and you name it, bears. Um, and so to have a, a robust ecosystem... Um, salmon, especially a, a, we'll say largely coastal ecosystem, but it's not totally coastal because some of these salmon swim really far inland. Um, it, you want to have these fish present, um, and the paucity of fish, uh, or the lack of fish is starting to put a strain on those ecosystems. You wind up seeing fewer animals of other species, um, that it could in fact, uh, be you could call it that salmon in very many ecosystems act as a keystone species. This is really far away from waves That's and, fine. and wave That's propagation. Fine. I don't care. But it is okay. It's interesting. It is totally fascinating. And it is, um, and as somebody who spends a lot of time on the coast, um, understanding sand flow does change surf spots and it does change the way waves interact with coastlines it does affect property owners i mean all of this stuff is is not like kind of related it's all ridiculously intertwined so to think that the the lack of ability that salmon have of reaching their traditional spawning areas because of dams that have been constructed in various places for what could be considered to be relatively innocuous and sometimes beneficial purposes like um, generating hydroelectric power um, have the inadvertent consequence of negatively impacting forest ecosystems, which has a cascading effect on um, the health of lower mountain regions, sometimes upper mountain regions, sand flow because of the dams, as you mentioned, altering sand flow dynamics. So, and as a result, there'll be some winners and there'll be some losers out of it. There'll be other organisms that wind up showing up and taking advantage of uh, the changing habitat. 
Yeah. From what I know about the dam issue, largely from the documentary Damnation, Mm -hmm. it seems that one of the main issues is that there was a period where we were constructing a ton of dams, and now many of those are derelict, and they're not even being used. That's right. So the ecosystems are suffering, and humans aren't even getting the benefits out of the dams. Absolutely. Absolutely. This in that was a good doc. I thought that was one of Patagonia's better documentaries. I've seen I've they seen, make they make very good ones and that one was it it hit an entry point into an environmental issue that uh su- I think surprised a lot of people because the dam issue isn't one of those it's not one of those issues where you already have your foot dug into the ground on um the topic like gay rights or something like that right if you make a documentary on gay rights you're going to either have people who have sunk their feet into the ground on one side or the other side it's very difficult to change opinion on either side but if you do a documentary and i very much commend people who are doing stories on gay rights i think it's a very important issue but people who do stories on issues that most walking around don't even know is an issue can shape the hearts and minds in a way that is incredibly effective yeah so i think that film did a lot sure and and has the potential to at the very least introduce a bunch of people to a topic that um they should care about or they could care about and make a serious difference in the quality of life of not just humans but all kinds of organisms and ultimately human beings because just looking at at market prices people love salmon and so having healthy salmon fisheries i mean this is the ducks unlimited model having healthy salmon fisheries and allowing people access to go and utilize that resource in a moderated way um and then encourages resource conservation it's just when i say in a moderated way the ducks unlimited model is having there there are a bunch of duck hunters that got together and they said we don't want this resource to disappear and started buying tracts of land that ducks traditionally used as um places to stop rest eat overnight um stay for the winter summer whatever and um and then uh provide regulated access to that and preserving the resource and they advocate like crazy about it and it is a a model that was created by what at least in the 70s wasn't considered to be an environmentally sensitive group that um that is extraordinarily sensitive because the people who care tremendously about the resource are the ones who are actually using it on a regular basis and boy wouldn't there be a lot of sad duck hunters if there were no more ducks, I mean, that would suck. And so um, the same thing is true for the salmon fisheries. And the same thing is true for wave resources, because in a lot of, a lot of ways, the wave resources, if we can coach people on how to use these things in a, re, in a, a, a respectful manner to the coastline. Um, and, and what I mean by that is just not leaving trash on the beach ultimately and and being civil to one another um then you have a bunch of people who become advocates for that resource and preserving that resource and there's a certain quality of life that everybody winds up experiencing that is enhanced as a result of being stewards of that resource 
unfortunately, one of the byproducts of having um, no regulation on a specific resource like salmon or ducks or the classic example, the one that really hits home is bluefin tuna, um, is that the way market forces work is that now that there's a scarcity of resources, that resource is more valuable. So there are people that are in really incentivized to go and hunt down every single last bluefin tuna because they can sell them for, in some cases, $100,000 of fish. Damn. And, and um, I believe, if I'm not, not mistaken, the market opener for bluefin last year was some seven figures seven figures um so if if that model from ducks unlimited i th i think this needs to be transported to a bunch of other human endeavors how would that be transferred into fishing it seems that um because we care so much about the charismatic megafauna we yep. very much focus on the lions, tigers, rhinos, and really have um, very little empathy for a, an animal like bluefin tuna. How would you like to see the um, hunting uh, and and conservation techniques adopted into the fishing world? So, I, I think the one that we the the ones that we have in place and in. Sorry, and just to stop you, like, feel free also to expand on what hunting practices that you're seeing are working, like the Ducks Unlimited model, and what you're seeing that aren't working. Because I think that a lot of times hunting as a whole can become too simplified uh, in, in regards to what I was talking about, two groups being pitted against each other, where it's um, PETA versus people saying you you should be able to hunt whatever you want and this is environmental stewardship and i'm kind of a novice in this world and yeah. i i can tell you how i feel about hunting pig in hawaii or getting a whitetail to uh tag you know on the mainland i i feel that that's very okay but I'm still trying to wade through uh, the rest of this world that I'm very new to. So feel free to illuminate any light on any of those points that I just made. Sure. So as a starting point, uh, as a <laughs> as somebody whose focus is on on math and modeling using evidence and empiricism, I would say start with having um, a conversation about facts and broadcast those in a very clear understandable way bring people together as much as you possibly can around consensus because you know something like bluefin tuna they move all over the place um and in moving all over the place they don't know if they're in international waters or they don't know if they're in the u.s waters they don't know where they are so if the united states were to enact bluefin tuna regulations and Japan doesn't, well, that'll help the fish a little bit. But getting a bunch of people to the table who have a mutual interest in preserving a resource and then coming up with a plan together that everybody has buy-in on that is, is an international platform. I mean, people's livelihoods are going to be at stake. There's going to be lots of money involved. There's going to be heavy lobbying. I mean, it will get very political really fast. Um, 
but if we don't do these kind of large scale endeavors as a as a a human species for organisms like bluefin tuna where we have to have a paris climate talk except it's not about climate it's about bluefin tuna and a bunch of people get together like we did for whaling well with the exception of a couple countries um and um but two as far as i know right um or maybe it's three um which but, ones do, weren't or when, when did the whale global whale conference happen i the, the save the whale movement really got got wings in in the 70s but the idea is essentially like not to, I don't want to be schizophrenic about the topic is getting together uh, that on something that's evidence-based with people that have a mutual interest in preserving a particular resource, because I think everybody's going to be sad when bluefin disappear. And if we keep doing what we're doing, bluefin are going to disappear. If we keep building dams where we are building dams and we have this radical fluctuation in um, watershed activity on the west coast of um, the of North America, we may see some salmon populations crashing. I mean, the Klamath River already had the lowest run that I've ever heard of. I'm sure there's been lower ones, but there's no commercial fishing. I don't know if you noticed in Santa Cruz, we had dozens and dozens and dozens of commercial salmon fishing boats parked off of the wharf. And that's because the salmon fishery was closed for commercial fishing all the way up to um, the border with Canada. As somebody told me there was some, there were a few boats from Alaska here. So the incentive is when the, the fishery is open with market forces as they are and prices as they are to go and get every single member of the resource. Um, and, and that's going to lead to extinction or a population that, is so close to being extinct, it might as well be extinct because it will be extinct due to lack of diversity in um, in their genome, in the genetics. So getting together around evidence-based practices that are agreed upon by large groups of people for the preservation on a resource and start with something that looks like a, a statement or a mission statement, like we want our great-grandchildren to be able to eat bluefin. Well, that's a start. Or uh, we want salmon populations to um, be sustainable. What does that mean? Well, to where um, they go and come back every year and there's a, a, a relatively stable population that continues to appear. Um, and, and that may look like not taking very many for a little while. But some of these species reproduce pretty fast. If we just alleviated pressure for a couple of years, and this would be painful, like people all over would have to pitch in because there are some folks that would feel real serious pain over this. People that are involved in commercial industries, they, they need some source, they need help to get by. You can't look at somebody and say, you can't do what you're doing anymore, period even though there's still the resource out there, because all you're going to do is incentivize a black market. In regards to salmon, are their populations dropping off as a result of dams up uh, the North Coast? Um, so salmon populations have really taken a time. And, and I don't want to, I, I want to circle, I do want to circle back to the larger issue of, of hunting and stewardship. Uh, but I was curious quickly on why that is the case. Um, in sure. regards to salmon populations. Sure. 
from from what I know and understand as far as um, salmon populations are concerned, and there are certainly people who they live and breathe salmon, but um, having done a, a little bit of research into this myself, um, salmon populations have taken a hit on a couple different um, from a couple different perspectives, and that is our hunting techniques have gotten really really good. We are able to spot fish with planes. We've been able to spot fish with um, sonar. We've been able to spot fish um, with uh, different underwater tools. Um, boats relay information to one another. The methods for catching fish have gotten more sophisticated with persigners, and um, which are large nets that are dragged by two boats catching an entire school of fish. Um, and um, as a result, the commercial fishing practices, as well as coupled with habitat degradation, meaning dams and pollution, have just hammered salmon populations. Now, generally, Canada and Alaska have they have been working on these these on different models for sustaining their populations. Um, from what I understand, um, in the Pacific Northwest, as well as in, um, California, we really have a lot of work to do, um, to catch up. And we should really be looking towards practices that have been proven to be effective <coughs> and hope if we return the habitat to some semblance of what it looked like before, that is removing some dams and <coughs> removing some of the, the, uh, extreme pollution events, um, changing some of our, the, the way rivers run, um, just by creating what are essentially large gutters, um, like in the San Lorenzo River, we have parts that are concreted. That's a gutter. The Santa Ana River down in Southern uh, California is a large gutter. It looks just like um, a trough, a trapezoidal trough that funnels water. There's no trees. There's no rocks moving through there. And, and if they are, they happen to grow there in between rainy periods and they get swept off or they get cleaned out. Um, and this just provides an impassable barrier for, for fish when you have no, um, no transit area that's safe. There's no place to lay eggs. Um, the distances become large or they run into a wall and they say, damn. So ah, I get it. Ah! <laughs> that's math teacher jokes right yeah, there. That was, that was pretty math. That was <laughs> well pretty math teacherly. Uh, so what are models that you're seeing that are inspiring to you? We got to leave people on a good note here. Sure. Uh, sure. Of course. Um, like I said, the, the Ducks Unlimited model um, is one where users of the resource um, are uh, acquire and, and pursue stewardship of it and maintenance of that resource um, with the number of people that live in the world and in regions that are that have compromised habitats education why are they valuable um having decisions that are based off of evidence um as opposed to gut feelings or something like that um anecdotal evidence which is to say one person's observation wow there are a lot of turtles where i live and turtle population doesn't seem to be a problem let's have turtle soup every night for the next couple weeks um so that kind of thing um and 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 that's a real big education component so 
I, I think the, the, the real tool that we as a society have is education and people who are involved in math and science, they have a real serious responsibility. We have a real serious responsibility to um, package what we know in a palatable kind of in a sexy way that's interesting um, and show why it's beautiful, why it matters, why what we're talking about is relevant um, and inspire people to go and participate. And a real big part of this is to stop the idea of STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and start calling it STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics, because the art of explaining something needs to be regained. And it has been by some, like Neil deGrasse Tyson is a really compelling speaker because he understands the art of storytelling. He knows how to put together images. He knows how to, to explain things to people without conveying the idea that you don't get this, you must be stupid. Because when you talk to somebody like that, they're not going to listen. They're not going to participate. And I think a part of it, a part of the, for example, the climate change and, and, and global warming conundrum is that when people don't understand um, climate science, which is really, really, really complicated, then the folks who do understand it in some cases are, are treating the folks that don't as being dumb. And that's not good for conversation. And, and that's a dead end. So um, I, th I, think, I think those are the, the things that we all need to work together on. And if we follow this and we follow education and we follow um, and STEAM, which is, and, and we start including other people as bringing something to the table, even if we don't think they do, we start l giving them a, a, a voice to to participate in radically different um, areas, we might be able to bring a lot of people together. And I'm really mindful of the fact that you're not going to be bringing everybody into the tent. That is that is just reality. There are going to be some folks that are going to disagree. Like you you mentioned PETA. I think these folks are really well-intended. And I share a lot of aesthetics uh, about um, the outdoor world and about cherishing resources and about cherishing life with members of PETA. But I think we probably have some fundamental differences about resource management and um, some pragmatic ways to go about managing resources on a planet that has 7.6 billion people and rising. You know, the story of the husband who's staying late up, late at night, he's up on the computer, he's stressed out, he's typing away on the keyboard in all caps and the wife turns to him and says, honey, come to bed, it's late. And he turns to her and he says, I can't, there's still someone wrong in the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah man. Um, well, I commend you for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you stopping by. I learn so much every time we have conversations, and you can come back anytime, man. Thank you, Kyle. I really appreciate the fact that you invite me here and allow um, me to get my agenda, which is education, out to a as broad of audience as possible. It's the reason why I became a teacher and the reason why I fell in love with teaching. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. What a guy. I am so lucky to have that dude as my neighbor. 
got some fantastic podcasts for you coming out in the weeks ahead. I did a round two with Dr. Chris Ryan. I did a round two with a sex educator, Amy Baldwin. I'm going to start releasing two or three episodes a week for at least the next couple weeks because I have so many good ones in the bank and they need to get out. They must get out to the world. So I will uh, see you soon. I won't see you soon, but you'll be listening to my voice again soon. Uh, The next one up is going to be with Dr. Chris Ryan. Uh, Before you take off, please take two minutes and give this show a rating on iTunes. It's very simple. You're going to click the bottom right-hand corner of your screen right now. It's the search button. You're going to click in the Kyle Tierman Show. Even if you're already on it right now, it's going to take you to a new page. You're going to click that page, and it's going to take you to a page that says Details, Reviews, and Related. The center button right in the center of your screen is Reviews. Click Reviews. Leave it a few stars. Say something nice. It really helps other people find this show. I'm going to leave you with a beautiful song by my talented sister, Rebecca Davis. And this is a song called The Sailor's Wife. If you or any of your friends are musicians and you want your music played at the end of my podcast, please get in touch with me on my website, kyle.surf. I will give you credit and I will link to your band page in the show notes. All right. See you soon.
Good. 